You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. sense of possibility 
engendered by a, by a suspended moment of transience and of belonging. And it has these contradictory associations for me to this day, over a half century later. Well into their 90s, my parents prized every document they possessed and showed great fear of officials asking for them. Clearly, a legacy of their survival of racialized persecution, of autocracy, fascism, and communism, of refugeehood. But I fall into this behavior as well. Every time I open my US passport at an immigration counter, my body relaxes, and I'm so glad to have a valid one. Being able to cross a border without fear is not something I will ever take for granted. And for me, this is surely an effect not just of my own memory of statelessness, but of my close memory of my parents' war and its aftermath, of their repeated loss of citizenship as Jews, their ghettoization, their vulnerability, their illegal nighttime crossing, their repeated scramble for papers, visas, and legitimation. And yet, once I do cross, something else happens. I imagine not knowing where I will go next. I can be here, and I can be somewhere else. I can be from somewhere else. I can be someone else. Statelessness is both terrifying and strangely, unexpectedly, full of possibilities. At the very moment that we're speaking about this, the number of stateless people across the world are multiplying. Their fates uncertain, their homes destroyed. In the United States, border authorities are incarcerated, incarcerating asylum seekers and separating children from their parents without a clear record that might facilitate their reunification. It is estimated that 11 million people currently living in the United States are in today's mostly erroneous terms, undocumented, unauthorized, illegal aliens. I would, venture that, I would venture that even if they are still legally citizens of their countries of origin, they are stateless if they cannot safely return there or acquire legal status in their country of settlement. My own statelessness was temporary. I was fortunate eventually to immigrate to the United States legally with my parents who had managed with effort and after a long wait to obtain visas and the, the generous support of the highest, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, and the Jewish Family Service of Providence, Rhode Island, who helped us relocate. Volunteers welcomed us and brought us to their, the apartment that they had prepared for us in Providence. I was 12, always utterly unfamiliar in English, a language I did not speak, but it was our new home. Though now legal, we continued to be stateless until we got our green cards and became permanent residents. With a green card, you still don't get a passport, but you can travel internationally. Five years later, my parents and I could apply for citizenship. With my certificate of naturalization, I became American. But just now, even that status is being called into question for many people as the President's administration begins to review naturalization certificates with an eye to revoking some of them. It will not happen to me, but it will be happen to people with brown skin. One stateless and thus unnatural, it seems, one remains vulnerable to unpredictable political shifts. And still, some attributes of statelessness stick to me still. So why am I telling you this story? Uh, I'm telling this to suggest the stakes for me of the present the set of readings that I suggested today and for our discussion this morning about refugees and statelessness. So in, despite these experiences these, that I shared with you today of loss and negation, 
I'd like to explore together with you whether statelessness could be claimed as a space of openness and potentiality, rather than merely a blockage to be overcome. I realize that this line of argument emerges precisely from the fact that my statelessness was temporary, that I was once stateless and, no, and am no longer stateless. But it's from this particular vantage point that I would like to conceptualize with you specifically a stateless form of memory and transmission one that exceeds the boundaries of nations and states. Scholars of memory have fruitfully challenged the idea that cultural memory is delimited by a culture or nation state, either serving or contesting hegemonic national and ethnic identities. And yet, present memory culture has been incre increasingly monumental and nationally based and oriented. I'm just giving you two examples here. Um, but the, the the field of memory studies, therefore, I think is, um, is a promising platform of debate about growing nationalism and the possibilities of countering it. At the same time, however, refugees, exiles, migrants, immigrants, emigrants, asylum seekers, all of whom carry trauma and memory with them on their sometimes endless journeys through spaces of unbelonging, tend to be left out of memory institutions and memory practices, which are still um, so much shaped by national imaginaries, and also out of transnational uh, conceptions of memory. And I'm showing you here, just as one example, the mirroring of the torture sites in Argentina and the death camps uh, in, in uh, the Holocaust, just to show how you know, transnational memory uh, can be conceptualized. But they are left out even here. So, um, and also, so are those who have either lost their citizenship, who've never been fully recognized as citizens by the states in which they live, and who are thus stateless at home. So as I see it, a conception of memory as stateless can shed light on the intimate qualities, the textures of memorial and post-memorial acts of transfer outside of and beyond the bounds of citizenship and the nation state. It can highlight the effects of unbelonging and non-citizenship on subjects who hold or who carry loss, trauma, and memory of painful pasts. These effects occur in the presence they live on in future generations as burdens, but also perhaps as possibilities. So let me just um, outline briefly what I think of as stateless memory and then discuss it on the basis of some artistic examples, but also going go back to Hannah Arendt, as I've asked you to do in, in the reading. So I see stateless memory as a pause, as a hiatus, that contains multiple temporalities, spaces, and conceptions of identity and community, as well as multiple possibilities of encounter and transformation. Stateless memory is not static, but dynamic, not passive, but active, not linear, but repetitive, recursive, circular, rhizomatic. Its activity is not uni, but multi-directional. So a stateless suspension in time and space, however protracted by circumstance, can suggest ways of mobilizing the memory of painful past in a different time frame than the progression toward preordained futures that are often seem inevitable in the space-time of the nation state and the catastrophes that it causes and suffers. So this is a way of trying to think outside the nation state. Right? It can open up the possibility of imagining alternative potential relationships between contemporary subjects and citizenship, national belonging and home, 
as well as alternate temporalities of becoming. Engaging statelessness at, at, in different histories and geographies at once, as we're doing here in this beautifully comparative and, and connective network of discussions that we're having, I think enables connective imaginaries that can gesture toward a future that will not be a repetition of the same, which is how I think nation states imagine um, their own futures. So admittedly, this aspirational and counter-national sense of stateless memory as a hiatus of potentiality seems radically removed from the reality of stateless lives um, that we're witnessing today, the dire condition of the everyday um, stateless that we're witnessing across the globe. So how can we tout stateless memory when stateless people are so totally subject to the often arbitrarily applied laws of nation states that they are either fleeing, being expelled from, appealing to, or unwanted by? Um, well, sometimes um, I feel those realities as um, so overpowering that they evacuate the possibility of being and thinking beyond the unforgiving strictures of nation states and the citizenship that they can grant or arbitrarily remove. But then um, I remember how Hannah Arendt wrote about statelessness in her very own moments of deportation and refugeehood. As Lindsay Stonebridge, whom I've asked you to read, has recently explained, Arendt, quote, responded to her own statelessness not by conceding to wretchedness, but by thinking experimentally and radically, turning historical and political pariahdom into restlessness and creative virtue. So um, the negation of belongings, personhood, and rights that is statelessness is, of course, nothing to be celebrated. The stateless, as Aiton Kyungu um, writes, stateless non-citizens were deprived of legal personhood as well as the right to action and speech. And also, I'm very sensitive to the fact that nowhere in present geopolitical reality can we actually imagine rights being granted outside or beyond the nation states and its potential ethno-nationalism any more than Arendt could in the mid-century. And yet, along with Hannah Arendt, I would not want to concede the possibility of at least trying to imagine what it would mean to create such a space. And that's you know, what I'd like to, to think about with you this morning. Of course, I'm not alone in turning back to Hannah Arendt at this moment. Um, I think nor in considering the present political politics of statelessness as a complex legacy of, the, of Cold War histories and their reconfigurations of nations, political communities, and citizenship. In, in fact, Hannah Arendt's writings about statelessness have in themselves become part of our cultural <coughs> close memory of the Second World War and, and thinking around the Second World War. Um, there's a, a, a really a wonderful little book that I would recommend about Hannah Arendt's phrase, The Right to Have Rights, which is um, written by five, four different authors, each of whom focuses on one of the words, the right to have rights, and then the fourth author talks about the whole thing. Uh, the authors of this book uh, say that Hannah Arendt uh, claim of stateless people to the right to have rights, quote, offers a key resource for thinking and acting politically in our own moment. Um, and yet, this very famous phrase, the right to have rights, has been hotly debated among contemporary um, thinkers. 
For RN, rights can only be acquired through national belonging and citizenship, but national belonging doesn't guarantee that both stateless people and persecuted national minorities suffer from the lack of rights or from differential rights. Much of the debate surrounding this phrase revolves around the foundational rights, the right to have rights, uh, that grants the possibility of having rights. So is it basic humanity that guarantees rights or that should guarantee rights in Arendt's view? Or is it, as Stephanie de Boyer in this book, The Right to Have Rights, and her co-authors argue, um, the membership in a political community that must first be acquired before that right can be claimed. So I think it's the latter. I think that what Arendt means is that it's membership in a political community and actually work to create that political community that guarantees rights. But, so, um, but what does it mean to have rights given the fragility of political communities? And this is the question that um, in the book comes up in the essay by Lita Maxwell, where um, she focuses on the word to have. What does it mean to have rights, right? And so, and she argues that rights should not be viewed as a natural possession. Rights is not something that we have, but it's a part of a political project of certain kinds of political worlds. Projects that can be ambivalent, that are collective, that are fragile, that are limited um, achievements. But um, she argues, and I agree with her in my, in my own reading of Arendt, that although Arendt is pessimistic about the possibility of international law or humanitarian protection outside the nation state, she does see the having of rights as a practice of creativity and imagination that might, by necessity, emerges from the loss of rights that results from statelessness and the unwillingness of nations to grant political asylum to refugees. So it's that creativity that by necessity, and this is also one of the things that I think she means in, in We Refugees, in her essay We Refugees, when she says that um, the, the Jews, stateless Jews in the Second World War have become the vanguard um, of, of other peoples. Uh, so she means that, yes, it announces the kind of statelessness and loss of rights of many other populations, but also perhaps the creativity that comes from that loss. And so the term vanguard, I think, carries, can carry both of those meanings. Uh, so in, in, in Lita Maxwell's interpretation of Arendt, to have rights means, quote, to participate in staging, creating, and sustaining a common political world where the ability to legitimately claim and demand rights becomes a possibility for everyone. Um, so rather than an assertion what, of that which already exists but must be better distributed, right? We all need to distribute our rights. Uh, this is an aspirational, future-oriented, and open-ended set of performative practices. It can be protest, it can be legislation, it can be collective action, it can be institution building. All the things we're talking about here is a way of having rights in this other sense of having. That can, and I think it can enable us to think further what it means to have rights. If rights claims are based on membership in a political community, then the work to create that community in itself becomes the basis of claiming rights and opening up that possibility for everyone who participates. So this is um, my sense of Arendt. And so my question um, that I'd like to discuss with you further is, well, can we see following Lindsay Stonebridge's reading of Arendt through literature, through readings of uh, Arendt's writings about Raphael Barnhagen, about Hans Kafka, um, about um, 
other writers and thinkers, uh, can we show that, um, that the work of creating and participating in art projects is a way of having rights in this sense or of participating in political community. So, um, and the, and um, so particularly, um, I think that the, the works that I asked you to look at um, help us understand Arendt's idea of having as a process rather than as a condition. They do, and these are works about statelessness. I've asked you to look at three of them. Uh, this work by Mirza Kupferme and Camino on the road. Uh, Wangechi Mutu's video project, The End of Carrying All. And also um, Stefanos Mandriotis' short film, Blue Sky from Pain. And I, I chose those particularly to illustrate different kinds of art about and by stateless peoples. Um, so, um, Kupferman and Mutu are, illustrate the migratory mobility, uh, mobility of statelessness, right? Migratory and migratory aesthetic and the mobility of statelessness. Uh, Loose Time from Pain is made about uh, the statelessness as a state of incarceration that we're witnessing today, and it's a film that, that's uh, taken in a detention camp. Um, of asylum seekers in Greece, and it's based on oral histories with specific asylum seekers. I know we've talked about our uh, oral history and film here, so I hope we can connect some of these discussions. Um, so this is a film, um, you know, a, a really beautiful and making makes very interesting aesthetic choices. Uh, the other two works that I uh, wanted to discuss with you, Kupferman uh, and Mutu create figures through which we can imagine statelessness from an aesthetic perspective. They're more in the realm of the symbolic rather than the realistic, whereas Blue's Time from Pain actually cites the, the words of uh, asylum seekers who were incarcerated, one asylum seeker in particular who was incarcerated in this camp in a place that he didn't know where he was. So it's much more in the realm of the realistic but also uh, making very interesting aesthetic choices. So um, I think um, I could speak at length about these works and I would like to uh, discuss them with you and I can show you a little bit of the, vid the two videos, the three videos if you would like, but I think I'll stop here and maybe try to bring in, uh, have this discussion um, as a collective discussion since this is meant to be a workshop and not a lecture. Okay, thank you very much. Thank mm -hmm. you.